please help support this philosophical conversation at freedomain.com forward slash donate. Tom's last night at the Hepners. It was going to be impossible to sleep. There could be no doubt of that. Tom lay in his little room. It was neither hot nor cold. One thought seemed unalterable, inescapable, and depressing beyond words. I can never return to England. Oh, he could go back. He would go back as soon as possible. But his England, the England before Germany, before Hitler, the England of a little room and a lot of books of napping and thinking and watching the slow sway of sunlight against his window, why, that England was dead and gone. Worse than that, it was a fairy tale or Santa Claus which had never been real except in his imagination, his fantasy, more like. But, and he had to be honest with himself about this, there was a certain measure of relief. The foreboding he had felt from when exactly, well, for a long time certainly, had broken at last. News anticipated is always worse than news delivered. He could not act in the face of uncertainty, of ambivalence, of fears without clear or traceable causes. But now the world is acting upon me, and my choices are no longer what they were. They are, perhaps, what I always thought they would be. Some part of him said, But perhaps there will not be war. And, of course, there might not be. Nothing was inevitable in a world without God, the world he had inherited from his mother. Nothing was inevitable to British rationalism, not in the same way as German mysticism. He thought that Renata was really railing against God, the God who had allowed Hitler into power. She was railing against an inevitability, against something foreordained. She railed against it, but could never fight it. One does not pit oneself against the infinite. All she could do was rail against her son, imagining that God might not have punished them with Hitler if he had fought against Nazism more. But now that Hitler was here, they had to accept God's will. Tom reached around, plumped up his tough little pillow, propped it against the headboard and sat up, turning to look out the narrow window. The countryside was dark. There was only a tiny sliver of a moon. Tom imagined for a moment that the moon was finally showing its dark side and that silver would never return to its face. But then he almost snarled at himself. The time for bad poetry has passed. Fuck metaphors. Their day is done, for the foreseeable future at least. The moon is just the moon. We must not sing its praises but arm and hunt under its simple light. It is not the face of a lover, but a rock which reflects the sun. It does not illuminate our hopes, but our prey. He still allowed himself to cry. Let that never end, he thought, thinking of Reginald, for I have seen what is revealed when the seas dry. There might not be war. He tried to bring the thought up, give it light and power, but I was pointless, like a diver trying to raise a shipwreck. It felt worse than foolish. It felt pathetic. What would it take to avoid a war? It would take what the West lacked utterly. It would take something worth killing for to keep. 
But if we still valued it, then Hitler would never have gained power, thought Tom, not knowing exactly why he thought it. It was Reginald and Klaus, and all this relativism. Let Germany find her own way. Tom turned his head back and forth on the pillow, enjoying the crunching of his hair. We are to be left with no metaphors and simple pleasures. A knock came at the door. Come in, said Tom immediately. Renata entered. Tom did not feel afraid, not in the way that he had at breakfast when she was dissolving his sausage. She entered as a supplicant. She closed the door silently and crossed the room. Then she seemed to collapse like a dynamited smokestack down onto the floor. She sat on her heels and folded her hands in her lap. He remembered that she wanted to be a nun. Tom, she whispered, and his heart almost failed at her tone. There is something worse than seeing the death of your children, he thought, and that is knowing that you will see the death of your children. Tom, she repeated after taking a moment to compose her voice. Tom, when you go back to England, you must tell people that they have allies here. He nodded slowly. He reached his hand for hers, but she wriggled it back slightly. You must tell them that he can be stopped if English people are not like us, if they are kinder than us, more resolute. I'm not saying this very well, but I'm not a priest or a politician. You are a strong man and a kind man. Anyone with eyes can see that three leagues off. But you do not fight. Please don't dislike me for this, but I shall never see you again, and this is the only way I have. The only thing I can do for my children, for those I love. You must fight, Tom. You cannot hide from a bad world. It will come and, it will come and get you anyway. Renata took a shuddering breath. Her fingers clutched at each other deep in her lap. And if you cannot fight, she said, then you must speak. The only people who are certain in uncertain times are bad people. They will lie. We lied to ourselves, and now they will lie for us. Tell the truth. We cannot be trusted, not any more after this. And, her voice dropped as if God had his ear to the door, and shoot him if you can. He is a cancer. He might be God's cancer to make us better, but you did not cause him, and you can shoot him without interfering with his plan. Kill him, that we all may live. Will you do that? Will you? I will, whispered Tom, thinking, despite himself, one day I shall be surrounded by people who are not intense and self-obsessed and who will actually ask me what I think, how I feel, Renata stayed in her kneeling position for many more minutes. Her head lowered slowly, almost imperceptibly, Tom could only tell by gauging her hair against the picture on the far wall by the door. Finally, she said, and her voice held yet another tone, I am an old woman, she leaned forward. I am an old woman, she repeated, so only one will I take? 
To Tom's only partial surprise, she kissed him on the lips. Her mouth was dry, and Tom thought that a woman's lips would not change too much over the course of her life, not like her skin or hair, say. And then he thought that she was not an old woman, certainly not yet fifty, and recalled the fertility of her hips. And then he felt a tickle of desire and pictured her head thrown back, his buttocks pumping, his seed spraying. And then he thought of Klaus and imagined being crucified by Martin, and his desire subsided rather smartly. Save them, said Renata, looking at him with eyes so dark they looked cadaverous. And good night. She turned and glided from the room, and Tom thought that Hitler seemed to have repealed both democracy and gravity at the same time. He did not expect to sleep, but he found himself awakened by Klaus in the morning. He sat in a chair by Tom's bed, in almost the same spot that his mother had occupied only a few hours before. So, said Klaus, he also seemed to have slept little. I wanted to let you sleep, but you have many miles to cover. How are you? asked Tom, sitting up. Resigned, replied Klaus, simply. What are you going to do? Klaus shrugged. Well, they know I can fly. Oh, it's too soon for that, Tom was going to say, but closed his mouth. Time was too short for foolish optimism. Well, to use a flying term I learned just yesterday, smiled Tom, his heart breaking for perhaps the thousandth time. Stall them. Klaus smiled, then looked away. I don't think it could have been averted, Tom. Tom pursed his lips. It's too damn early for these dilemmas. I could ease his heart, but not at the expense of the truth. I think, he said carefully, that if we had both worked harder, we might have had an effect. I shouldn't have just stayed in my room. Klaus laughed. <laughs> Good Lord, Tom. Whether you're in your room or not, the world spirit marches on. The world spirit, if it exists, is nothing but the sum of all our choices. Klaus's smile fell away, a crack of plaster from a shaking wall. Yes, that might be so. All right. Now, how are we going to get you to Berlin? There's no problem getting out? No, there are no travel restrictions from what I've heard. He wants the road cleared for the exodus of the jury. They talked about travel options for a little while, then Tom packed and went downstairs. Breakfast was a grim, resolute affair. Martin said grace for a long time, repeatedly asking for the strength to survive the trials they had brought on themselves and then asking for the strength to serve the new Germany. His voice did not betray any stress at his contradictions. Renata did not return Tom's gaze, which was indication enough of the subversive nature of her nightly visit. The various siblings seemed subdued, gathering strength. After the Amen, Tom did not even pretend to eat. He drank tea and watched the others. Conversation was sparing. The radio was silent. Tom leaves Berlin. Getting off the train in Berlin, the first thing that Tom thought of was that a large number of wealthy people had lost a lot of change. A group of men in suits and women in furs were on their hands and knees, their hands working, little foamy scraping noises escaping their huddled forms. 
clean, Jewish scum, cried a man standing over them next to another man. His evil, leering face hovered over them. It was clear that he wanted to kick them, but was forcing himself to restrain for the sake of being able to kick them more later. As Tom passed them by, he saw that they were cleaning the platform with toothbrushes. As he passed the group, he saw the man spit into the little foam circles. You missed a spot, he said, pointing a truncheon at his little pile of spittle. The other man was unzipping his fly. Let me help you rinse, he laughed. Tom hurried on. It was strange. People flowed around the little scene, giving it no more attention than janitors at a museum cleaning an old exhibit of prehistoric men. Entering the street, he looked around for a taxicab, his eyes refusing to alight on any object for more than a moment, fearful of finding more evidence of random abuse. But the city moved on pretty much as before. There were fewer communists around, but the preachers still spat from their fruit-box altars. Tom looked deep into the faces of those speeding past. This is the last time I shall see this land, he thought, hoping that the idea might provoke some extra sense in him which could divine the thoughts of those hurrying by. But they looked almost the same as they had when he had arrived. He wanted to stop each one and ask them if they knew what had happened, what they had done. It was the same feeling he had when walking home very late at night in London. He would want to stop each car and ask the occupants what the hell they were doing out at three o'clock in the morning. Then, of course, he realized that they could justifiably pose the same question to him. He went straight to a little room not far from the airport and deposited his bags. Then he walked over to a travel agent and inquired about flights for tomorrow. There was one at 10.30 in the morning. His ticket was checked. All was well. He slept poorly that night as well. Starting around midnight, some sort of massive celebration seemed to be going on. He saw the flicker of firelight against his ceiling. He heard badly blown trumpets and screams of pleasure or pain, which he did not choose to get up and investigate further. If a crime was going on, what could he do? The police and Nazis. Cheering erupted at times, but he could not hear any coherent or amplified speeches, so he assumed that people were responding to some symbolic event. Hopefully it was just the burning of the Weimar law books or some decadent Western literature. There was also the clatter of occasional gunfire, and Tom thought that the communists and fascists must be in quite a panic. They had all been chasing the ring through democratic means, and now the Nazis had won. And it wasn't as if there would be any more elections. Ballots were out. Bullets were in. Do it now, comrades, thought Tom, unable to find heat in his thin covers, while Hitler has yet to get an army. Also, he was struck by the thought that the communists and fascists were unlikely to go peacefully, knowing, as they probably did, that the new regime could now murder them at its leisure. You have a gun, and you know a man is coming who wants to kill you. So they had to act now violently and decisively. Cornered prey have no choice but to fight. Tom wondered what was happening tonight to all the decadent men and women who were at that awful play or the piano recital. Were they polishing up their horn-rimmed glasses to go and join the parades? Would they tickle the noses of their new Nazi masters with their imitation boas? Would they write plays about how Hitler was really a lesbian? Would they giggle as they were burned? 
Oh, I have to get out of this country, thought Tom fervidly, rolling over and pulling his pillow over his head. Tom in his room. The Great Debate It had been a little over two years since Tom had first moved into his little room. He was in the time of life when time still stretches ahead like a blank canvas one is afraid of getting to work on. And he loved his solitude. He loved it in a way which was hard for him and harder for anyone else to understand. It could be said that he had had little existence in his family. His mother fused with him like a fried egg left on the stove too long. His father did not understand him or try to, but viewed him as a sparrow passing through a room. This image came to Tom from reading about the history of religion. When an old Anglo-Saxon warlord first met a Christian priest, the priest explained the idea of heaven and hell. And the warlord thought for a long time and then convened his knights that evening. He said, Before we met such men, we thought that life was just like a sparrow flying through a room. Now we have heard from where the sparrow comes and to where it goes, and our room will never be the same. Reginald, well, Reginald was a constant force in Tom's life. Reginald had something to prove. Reginald always had something to prove. When Tom was younger, this was obvious. Reginald was usually better at sports. Tom would grind his teeth in frustration when they played tennis or football or cricket, and for a time was a terrifically bad loser, even hurling his tennis racket in frustration on occasion. Tom was a faster runner. That was the only advantage he had, but it was not very helpful once they graduated past tag and British Bulldog. As they got older, Reginald's teasing became more subtle. When he was young, he lorded it over his brother. When he won a game, he would dance... As they entered puberty, though, a different devil began to live within him, an older, wiser, more patient devil. A devil who counseled that to oppose an enemy was far less powerful than to have one's enemy oppose himself. When they played tennis, for instance, Reginald no longer mocked Tom when he beat him. Oh, no, that would be most obvious. What he did now was irritate his younger brother in a much more subtle manner. He sliced his shots with a casual brutality which spoke parchments of suppressed rage. And when Tom began to lose, always, always cursing himself for his psychology, for his inability to imagine beating his older brother, Reginald would become sad and compassionate, his face growing long and serious, his mouth compressing into a silent speech of unspoken remonstrance. But Tom, those lips would say, surely we are beginning to outgrow all this. Surely you cannot be continuing the vain and pointless wars of our early childhood. Why do you continue to fight me? Why are you holding on to all this in this way? Why are you so stuck back there in the muck of our beginnings? Now we are supposed to be having fun. We are supposed to be wiser. We are supposed to enjoy our day, the sun, the play of our muscles. Why, oh why, are we still at war? And Tom would hear... All of this continuously, with every stroke and every wild shot of his. And Reginald would call over, Do you need to take a break, Tom? You seem to be getting agitated. And Tom would want to leap over the net and thrash his brother with his own tennis racket, edgy but not just the face, and would have to swallow his own bile and would charge over the court to his own inevitable defeat. 
Both brothers were preternaturally sensitive, and this was a great problem. There were two incidents from Tom's early childhood in relation to Reginald, which kept returning to him. The first was when Tom was five or six, sitting at the edge of a large lacquered dining table after dinner, with a gaggle of cousins and aunts. He was complaining about being a younger brother. Everything I get is later, or less, or before. I have to go to bed earlier. I get less allowance. I'm not allowed to make my own toast. I can't be alone in the bathtub. The list went on, but finally Tom said, But that's all right. I'm a year younger than Reginald, so at least I get to live a year longer. There had been a pause then, and the adults had exchanged the kinds of amused smiles which really alerted Tom to impending words of doom. But Tom, said one of his aunts, being a year older doesn't mean that you get to live a year longer. You could get hit by a bus tomorrow. Public humiliation, universal injustice, Reginald smiling in triumph, and a memory which could not be erased, which sat on the rim of the general dustbin of history, refusing to fall, to go in, and staring at him with patient, implacable, glittering eyes. I shall wait, and you shall comprehend me, and only then shall I go. For if you do not, we shall both go into the dustbin together. The other incident was when they were playing cards with their cousins. Tom was seven. His math skills, never very good, were challenged by a rather complicated scoring system being managed by Reginald, who always wanted to keep score, which made Tom suspicious, but he never found him cheating. At one point, frustrated with being left behind, Tom cried out that an error in scoring had been made. Reginald stopped the game with an imperious hand, saying that this had to be completely cleared up before they could continue. And then he had laid the scoring sheet in front of Tom, going over and over how Tom's score had been arrived at. And Tom fought and fought, and then, at one point, understood in a rush, and saw that his brother was right. But he could not stop fighting, and gradually everyone on the blanket realized that Tom was continuing to fight, even though he knew he was wrong, and the game had broken up and everyone had drifted away, everyone except Reginald, who sat and continued to explain the scoring to Tom, though they both knew that Tom was lying, and had been lying for some time, and they argued themselves into whispers and were sent to bed after dinner, for fear that they were getting colds or something worse. This was an odd memory, because Tom did not feel ashamed of it. Later in life, when he became very interested in ethics, he would occasionally go back to this memory, wondering why he felt justified in continuing a deception long after he knew it was a deception long after it was exposed. There were things that he was ashamed of, but that was not one. He felt that he had, in that instant, both lost and gained something. He had lost for the obvious reason that he had betrayed his own integrity and sense of truth in order to continue opposing Reginald, but he had gained something as well. There was something in Reginald which had to be opposed. Tom had always felt that to be the case. It wasn't competitive. It was grindingly oppositional. They were like two armies facing each other across a history which neither could remember. They were competitive insofar as it was a war of attrition, and arms had to be manufactured as rapidly as possible 
But they weren't competitive like old and evenly matched tennis players who fought hard and bought each other drinks afterwards. No. They were at war. At war with all the implacability and underhandedness of combatants who can no longer remember the cause. And it was true, Tom felt to a large degree, that the world could not really accept them both. The world could not be fitted to them both. There was no plurality in their coexistence. They were like a black man and a white racist, a Nazi and a Jew, a Greek and a Turk, a Muslim and an atheist. There may be an uneasy peace in the face of a common enemy, perhaps, but in the long run, only one of them can survive. But there was something endless about their conflict. The black man does not need the racist, but the racist needs the black man, because if there is no black man, he does not know what he is. He is no longer a racist. The racist is committed to destroying the black man, but cannot ever let it actually happen, not to the very end. The black man is the identity of the racist. What the racist requires is that the black man be poisoned by racism to keep himself down, to justify the false superiority of the racist. The true fight, though, is not what it appears. The black man does not have to fight the racism in the white man, but in the black man, in his own breast, where he agrees. Tom had a strong soul, but he had received no nurturing at the hands of his family. One of the great revelations that he had in the two years in his little room was that no one in his family had any idea who his favorite writer was, or which paintings he loved, or what his hobbies really were, or what his favorite color was, or his favorite actress, or the football team he would have supported if he could choose any one, or his opinion of Scottish women, or his excitement when reading about stories of the Amazonian jungle, or the fact that still, even into his twenties, he loved boys' adventure stories, or that he loved history because it always seemed more noble, more clear and more beautiful than the present. This meant world history. Personal history always seemed quite the reverse. Or that he sometimes loved the world, his view, London, even when fogged with low rain, with such passion that he wanted to tear out of his own skin and rope it to his embrace with endless tendons. Or that he wanted to be a sheriff of the Old West with a cocked hat and eye patch and a quicksilver hand. Or that he was frightened of German philosophy. Or that he was horrified and ashamed of his horror by visible physical deformities. Or that he was physically vain. Or that he feared for his future. Or that he loved his 500 pounds a year, but also worried that it would be his undoing. Or that he felt he was stuffed full of promise, but void of direction, like a zeppelin overfilled with helium and sent off to bump under the ceiling of the stratosphere. There were a million other thoughts, and none of them were of any interest to his family. Reginald was brusque, practical, and had little patience with such nonsense. He derided over-analyzing in any form, and considered that Tom, by sitting alone in his room and rummaging through his own psyche, was engaged in a most narcissistic form of navel-gazing. "'The world is owned by those who act,' he said repeatedly. 
And Tom had the same thought each time. Does he mean those who do or those who pretend? So Tom had never been able to find himself through his family. In fact, it was quite the opposite. The Spencers had actively blocked Tom from developing his own identity. Thus, it was quite remarkable that Tom should have retained the ability to spend time alone with his own thoughts, to abandon the future and simmer productively in the past and present. And, and there was a manner in which the modern world did not really fit Tom right at his core. He felt from his love of 19th century thought and art that the world had gone in the wrong direction. And, like any driver who's taken a bad turn, it would take a lot to turn around. The longer the world went in the wrong direction, the worse would have to be its reversal. And this cult of the new, the artistic movements of incomprehensibility, Dadaism, surrealism, constructivism, this idea that the world had changed so much that none of the old rules applied, or rather that all of the old rules were mere exercises in power to benefit the ruling class, and anyone who followed them was a blind, foolish sap. And this truly meant all rules, even basic ones, like telling the truth. Nowadays, this was as true at All Souls as it was at fashionable dinner parties, there was the noble lie lifted from Plato. It was often applied to Soviet Russia, and Tom heard it many times. It went like this. Russia is a noble experiment deserving our strict attention and qualified support. It has its difficulties, of course, and we should not treat as gospel everything we read in Pravda or treat missives from Moscow as sermons from the Mount. But there are two kinds of difficulties in societies. The first kind is those caused by bad ideas. Untrammeled capitalism was one. The 19th century, child labor, the robber barons. There is no remedy for such ills except a change in government, either a form or content. The second difficulty, however, is much more complex. When a society's ideas are better than the nature of its inhabitants, then difficulties within that society must be examined much more closely. There was never a perfect Christian society because of original sin, if you like. But that does not mean that Christian ethics are wrong. There may never be a perfect communist society, but that does not mean that communism is wrong. If communism encounters difficulties in its implementation, it is not because the ideas of communism are bad, but rather because its fine, delicate machinery is being implemented over the brute opposition of uneducated peasants. It is natural for the average kulak to resent the collectivization of his land because his forefathers were serfs for so long, and because of the Tsar, he associates authority with greed. The idea that authority, the authority of the Soviets, could work to his advantage is utterly foreign to him. So he fights, he undermines, sometimes he sabotages. And then the capitalists cry, Aha! You see, communism has problems as well! And they are right at the moment in Russia. But that is because of the coarseness of the people, not the falseness of the ideas. And so the difficulties are downplayed, and why not? The idea is noble and true, but it sometimes runs afoul of human imperfection. To trumpet such failures would be to play into the hands of your enemies, to provide ammunition to the capitalists, to allow them to continue their exploitation. Failures not endemic to the system should be downplayed, 
Even the capitalists do this. A biscuit tastes bad to one in a thousand people. They don't take out adverts in the newspaper saying, Biscuits taste bad! No, you have to find that in the fine print, if it's even there at all. If the peasants resent collectivization due to their own selfish ignorance, Moscow can hardly be expected to say, Peasants resent collectivization! No. They say, Collectivization proceeding smoothly. There is the rule, and then there is the exception. When the rule is sound, one may gloss over the exception from time to time to avoid confusion. If you are a doctor and one person in a thousand reacts badly to a life-saving medicine, would you tell a dying patient of the risk? Of course not. The stress of worrying about it would be terrible, and would not affect the outcome except negatively. So it was all right to lie. And stealing? Well, that was an obsolete rule in the new thinking. When there is no property, there is no stealing. On the contrary, property itself is stealing. So telling the truth was optional. Propaganda was more important than honesty. Stealing was impossible. Integrity? Modern integrity was integrity to an idea, not to the good. If you were a fascist, then whatever furthered the cause of fascism was good. And violence? That was, to Tom, the great question of the early thirties. What about the question of violence? That was a question answered with grim, simple absolutism. In the nineteenth century, all praise it, all damn the propaganda of Dickens, society was considered an honorable place. Law, while sometimes imperfect, was striving towards truth and honor. The social contract was binding obedience for the sake of protection because the laws were honest and just. In fact, the idea of the social contract was dying out. Laws were just, thus obeying the laws was the same as being moral. Personal morality created the authority of the state, not vice versa. This was a new, unprecedented, post-enlightenment idea, and it took deep roots in the century which provided the greatest single advance in the human condition, the 19th. It did not survive the onset of the 20th. The ideas flowing in Germany about the innate immorality of capitalist democracies destroyed the social contract, personal morality, and the moral authority of the Western societies. It was sad, Tom often thought, how easily such noble structures had collapsed. The structures were powerful, but undefended. The attackers were mere termites, but endless in their eating hatred. The result was inevitable. It became impossible to think of Western society in moral terms. The capitalists were immoral, of course, but it was worse than that. It was not that certain capitalists were immoral and could be reformed through argument and social humiliation, no. It was that morality was impossible in a capitalist society. The social contract was impossible. Obedience was futile because there was no protection in capitalism, only exploitation. Personal morality was impossible. One was either an exploiter or one of the exploited. Capitalism corrupts irrevocably. It was no more possible to reform capitalism than to slow a man falling from a cliff. The logic, the destruction, was inevitable. In fact, even attempting reform was futile, evil, 
Those who argued for the 40-hour workweek minimum wages and safer working conditions were considered social fascists who attempted to make concessions with an evil entity. Capitalism was exploitative by nature. Reforming it could shroud that exploitation, but not eliminate it. In fact, reform was more dangerous than capitalism because it dulled the desire for revolution. So the Western democracies were invaded by a virus, and this virus took down almost every single intellectual in every single university. German thought became cool, and every progressive was either a relativist, a communist, or a socialist. People who had never been in the same room as a manual worker appointed themselves as spokespeople of the proletariat. Those who knew nothing about economics argued for the redistribution of income. Those who had never been in a fistfight demanded a violent revolution. Sickly youths worshipped the meaty arms of two-toned Soviet poster boys. Men who had never held a job argued for the rights of working people everywhere. It was all nonsense, pure nonsense. And it culminated with the great debate of 1933. Reginald was the president of the debating club, and there was great consternation in England about the rising power of Germany. The Great Debate, 1933 The National Socialist Party was voted into power in January of 1933. Within six months, democracy and capitalism were dead in Germany. This caused great debate at all souls. One by one, countries were falling into absolutism. It seemed the wave of the future. Russia, communism, 1917. Italy, fascism, 1922. And now, Germany, Nazism, 1933. Sentiment in Spain was surging back and forth between the fascists and the communists, and it looked as if civil war would create, no matter which side was victorious, a dictatorship of some kind. Democracy certainly seemed to have had its day. And so, in 1933, Reginald proposed a public debate. The question, Be it resolved that, that this house refuses to fight for king and country, the posters went up, the hall was booked. The level of public interest was feverishly high. Everyone felt uneasy about Italy, Germany, and Spain. Everyone knew that without the support of the young, a war could not even be contemplated. Everyone knew that the Treaty of Versailles was on its last legs. And everyone was terrified of war because the next war would not be fought overseas. It would not even be fought in some distant part of England. It would be fought over their very heads and their houses, their gardens, neighbors and children would all be vaporized on perhaps the second day of the next war. No telegrams would be mailed because there would be no houses to deliver them to, no neighbors to deliver them. Nothing would be left. The survivors would envy the dead and all too soon be tempted to eat them. Plumbing would fail, waste would accumulate, disease would spread. Fatalities would be in the millions within a month. Civilization would be at an end. No one would even have any idea who won. Government would cease. Base predators would return. Packs of skinny dogs would drag away babies while keeping the mothers at bay with drooling snarls and quivering haunches. Gangs of criminals would rape and roam. 
casual slaughter. It would be worse than the fall of Rome, because after Rome there were no guns, the fights were more even. They would not be now. The army would never even make it overseas. The soldiers would become the new government, and they would take what they pleased. It would be a world of unprecedented horror, without bottom, without hope, without end. And so, as it can be imagined, there was great interest in Reginald's debate. Tom heard of it through Hart, who wrote often and came on occasion to visit him in London. Hart was horrified by Reginald's position, for it was well known that Reginald was a pacifist. To Hart, it made no sense. There were worse things than death. Going back into the mines was one. Living in a dictatorship was another. Hart had grown up being brutalized by the other boys of his little village, and so he had no illusions about the nature and practice of dictatorship. Tom also knew something about dictatorship through his family, but Tom's knowledge was more about propaganda than brutality. One afternoon, strolling through Hyde Park, they decided to do something quite extraordinary. Hart was, through natural rotation, to be Reginald's opposition during the great debate. Hart was eager to do his best, and he and Tom worked for a long time on the arguments. The debate was set up as a four-part sequence. The first part was a 15-minute argument, followed by two rebuttal periods wherein each opponent was allowed to answer the arguments of the other. The final part were two five-minute summing-up arguments. Reginald was scheduled to start the debate, but the final word was left to heart. As they walked, Tom felt some dark shoot of absolutism reach down from his mind, down his spine, almost to his bowels. Listen, Hart, you have been a great friend to me, he said, interrupting one of Hart's practice arguments. Thanks, Tom, said Hart, a little startled. Ever since he had left All Souls, Tom was becoming more demonstrative. It still took getting used to. Hart wasn't quite at the stage of reciprocity, but he didn't find it as startling as he had when this habit first emerged. I mean it. Except for Reginald, of course, you are the only schoolmate who has kept in touch with me. And you actually put a lot of effort into it. You write, you come to see me. I'm the Pratt who never comes to you and takes weeks to reply to your letters. Hart smiled, brushing back his thin hair. Look, you're the golden god. I'm the acolyte. I accept that. No! cried Tom, startling some pigeons. That's not right. That's not going to work, not in the long run. You've kept me abreast of what's happening in the intellectual world. I can't get that from papers and the odd speech. I promise to be a better friend. Well, I appreciate that, Tom. Right. And now, having said that, I am about to completely undermine my credibility because I want to ask you for a favor. What's that? You want to do this debate? Yes. Because of its publicity? Hart snorted. Hell no. Because I think that pacifism is a little girl's philosophy because I think it will fuck us up royally before long. Because it invites pillaging. It's like everyone has forgotten about Vikings, and you will do a fantastic job. Truly, wizard, I believe that. Thanks, but I want to do it. There was a pause. Hart stopped walking for a moment, his shoulders sagging. Tom stopped and turned to him. Hart looked up, desperate worship in his eyes. But, Tom, you're not a student anymore. We'll check the rules if I can't problem solved. Tell me, 
This was a phrase Hart used, which Tom loved. It meant, tell me everything behind that thought. Passion, said Tom, passion will determine this debate. I have fought Reginald on this issue for fifteen years. I am passionate about it, too, said Hart, breaking one of his own rules, which was, when you say to a man, tell me, you mustn't interrupt his response. Yes, you are, said Tom. I know you are. They moved to one side to let a runner pass them by. They sat on a bench. A chill wind wandered over the green. Tom shivered. Something frigid was churning through his innards. His hands were shaking. But something is going to unite this argument, Hart, he said. Something which comes from the heart. Something old and passionate and Anglo-Saxon. Because there is something feral about us, something which gave us the strength, certainty, and brutality to rule such a vast empire. Hmm, said Hart, staring down at his hands. Tom knew that Hart could refuse him nothing, and his heart broke at the sight of Hart, sitting there like a depressed child whose last toy has just been snatched away. I will not take anything from him which he does not want to give, and not out of Deference to me, but because he sees it clear and entire. Hart, let me ask you this, he said after a moment. And if you can answer it, I will withdraw my petition. I don't want to be the bastard who takes something from you because you care for me, because I care for you too. I don't want to be that person. There it was again. Tom's feelings spilled over, and Hart shivered. This is my question, said Tom softly. You are a British soldier in the Middle East, keeping the Jews and Palestinians from each other's throats. You see a man wanted for acts of terrorism. You raise your rifle and shout for him to stop. He turns, sees you then, grabs a little boy, walking past. He holds the child up in front of him and starts backing away. You do not have a clean shot. What do you do? Hart paused. I... Is it crowded? Let's say... It's just you, the man, and the little boy. If I shoot and I hit the boy, said Hart slowly, I incense the Palestinian population. Endless reprisals follow. If I shoot and hit the man, the boy is saved, but there's still uneasiness in the population. But if he had hit the boy, they'll think we don't care. So you would let him go. That sounds accusatory, said Hart slightly reproachfully. I would not let him go. I just wouldn't risk the boy. No, I couldn't. Let me tell you what I would do, and then you can tell me whether I should take the debate with Reginald or not. All right. The shivering seemed to have passed from Tom to heart. Tom felt quite calm. I would shoot him, he said. I assume you mean the man, yes. And if you hit the boy, that is immaterial. Hart blinked and shivered slightly more violently. Imma immaterial? He tried to laugh. You've been spending too much time brooding in your room? Tom's gaze did not falter. No, Hart, he said gently. It's immaterial. What? You, you don't care about the boy? It's because I care greatly about the boy that it is immaterial. That's nonsense, snorted Hart, then smiled apologetically. They both knew that Tom was not prone to uttering nonsense. All right. How so? If I let the man go, 
Then word will spread among the terrorists that children work as human shields. Soon they will be dragging the children out to their barricades. They will get children to do their dirty work. They will be constantly attacking us as child murderers. They will attempt to get us to hate ourselves, to become disgusted with our peacekeeping efforts, to want to leave this place of madness and go home to our peaceful hills and little churches. Tom's eyes narrowed. They will win, Hart. Hart nodded slowly. So this is what I do. I aim for the man as if the boy was not there. It doesn't matter whether the boy lives or not. It only matters that I don't care whether he lives or not. Thus the terrorists will quickly realize that children are not effective as human shields. They will stop using the children to save themselves. They will fight like men again. And the lives of countless children will be saved as a result of me not caring about the life of a single child. But, but what of the general population? I refuse to refer to the child. It is not even part of the debate. Anyone who cannot see that it was the terrorist who dragged the child into the line of fire and not me is too morally corrupt to attempt an argument with. If the general population chooses to blame me rather than the terrorist, let them. I will not waver. Hart stared at his friend in wonder. My God, Tom, where the hell does this all come from? From my heart, said Tom simply from my compassion, from justice. From Germany? Asked Hart quietly. Could be, murmured Tom. Could be. What the hell does this have to do with the debate? Tom grinned humorlessly. Well, the Germans will be holding our children hostage, Hart. They will have enough bombers to destroy London. It's not even an allegory. It's the way things are. Can you stand up to that without a shred of internal doubt? Can you condemn children to certain death to save civilization? Would you gather their body parts, help dig their graves? Would you stand up to the wailing and scratching of their mothers who will call you a murderer and damn your name in their very souls? Would you be willing to go down in history as a warmonger, as a perpetrator of genocide on his own population? Could you do that, Hart? Do you have the strength? Because that is what it will take. Hart looked over at his friend and felt all the terror and excitement of facing a person who, through a combination of parental inattention, self-imposed solitude and natural will, is on the verge of becoming a true force of nature. He wasn't sure for good or ill. When Hart returned to All Souls, he dug up a copy of the rules of the debating club and found that it was possible. He could nominate a substitute debater on the day of the debate, actually right up until the beginning of the debate. There was nothing in the rules stipulating that the substitute had to be a current student, only that he had to be acceptable to the opposing team. Hart wrote to Tom about this, and Tom replied that he didn't think Reginald would give up the chance to beat him in such a public manner. For about a week before the day of the debate, Tom dozed almost continuously. Something new was taking shape in his personality. Or, he thought as he drifted in and out of consciousness, my natural self is casting off something old. He had an afternoon dream where he floated above a desert over a terrific sandstorm 
and saw an ancient city being revealed as endless tons of sand were cast to the sky. And as the harsh sand was blown away, it polished the city until it shone in silver patches under the endless storm. From spending so much time alone, reading, dreaming, thinking, and walking, Tom realized that vital aspects of his own soul were only emerging from silence and relaxation. As an evidence of his own development, it was important to note that Tom could no longer measure his relationship to the human race as a whole. He felt so overfull of opinions, ideas, and emotions that he could no longer interact with the average. When he did meet the odd group for lunch or enter a deeper conversation through his inability to suffer foolish talk, his intensity caused great discomfort. Occasionally, it was true, a certain soul would respond to his passion, his clarity, his lack of fear in the face of essential questions, but these people were few and far between, and could not accompany him for long. Sometimes he would exchange phone numbers with such people, but they were often oddities, only original, because they were so disorganized. They were unafraid to question prevailing mental habits because they had no discipline. When they got together with Tom, they questioned society, and then questioned their questions, and the validity of language, and then the existence of the tea room they sat in, and then Tom lost all interest in them. They were attracted by his originality and individuality, but when they came across his deep absolutism, they drew back. They hoped to use his originality to undermine whatever absolutes remained sitting within them, reproachful and insistent, when they found out that Tom believed in absolute morality with his whole soul. They generally abandoned the conversation with the petulant air of men who think they are going on a date with a slut, who then turns out to be a religious virgin. Tom did not write any arguments down for his great debate. He did not even make any notes. This argument will not be about being more believable or being right or being impressive or even beating Reginald, no. This argument will be about me being myself, as fully and deeply as is possible. The logic of this fight is in my soul, not my head or tongue. In this, he deferred to Churchill. He read one of the venerable statesman's essays written when he was 24, which said that the only way to convince an audience of a topic was to be convinced of it yourself. Of course, there was something great, bloody, and almost insane in the formulations he came up with. However, it had something to do with the ability to withstand suffering. Once, when Tom was about eight, a sister of Catherine's had come to visit them. He had been sick on the couch with mumps or something similar. He couldn't remember what now. Catherine's sister Lily had had five children by four different men. She was thinner than Catherine, which wasn't saying much, but her body had a kind of flaccidity which spoke of a life propped up by too many tendons and too few muscles. Lily lived in Bree, Scotland, and had traveled down by train to come and visit Catherine. Watching Catherine prepare for her sister's arrival, Tom had been fascinated and completely forgot about his own malady. She went around plumping cushions and dusting unnecessarily, for she was already a meticulous housekeeper. 
There was little in the house which needed preparation, but Catherine seemed to be realigning something in herself by putting the finishing touches on the house. Knowing her as well as he did, Tom's head craned over the sofa he had been installed upon. She watched it turn as she bustled, like a little tousled lighthouse, watching her. "'What, then?' she finally snapped. "'You're heartening,' said Tom very seriously. "'What of it?' "'Why, she's a pack of trouble, if you must know. "'I like to be a good, kind person, but there's times when you've got to harden. "'On occasion you've got to be as hard as a diamond, and just as cutting.' Why? Because some people use your sympathy to make up for their mistakes. I'm at my wit's end, she says in her letter. I'll tell you this, Sonny Jim. When people are at their wit's end, they always want to start using up yours. Why? Because, well, this is just my idea, and it might seem unchristian, but here it is. To be a good person, you have to be able to stare suffering in the face and turn away. Like, like the good Samaritan didn't. Sure. I mean, if a man in the ditch, drinks himself into a stupor. This is just an idea, mind. Then if you stop and help him, you're not really helping him. I mean, you might be helping him, but you're not helping other people like him. I don't understand. Catherine threw a cushion up into the air and clapped it with her meaty hands as it fell. Tom laughed the way her arms rippled, showing the muscles far under the fat. My sister Lily, she said, putting the cushion down and picking up another, never got married. Keeps having children, can't hold down a job. So if everyone pitches in and helps her out, her life becomes like something a woman can decide to do. Sure, you're sad all the time and your children are like wild wolves, but it still beats having to get up at the crack of dawn to work for a living. Another cushion vanished in a bang of hands. Catherine paused, then put it down and sat down by Tom's head. Her hand wandered through his hair and he leaned into it in pure animal pleasure. See, there are two types of poor people, Master Tom. She rarely used that phrase. It said, pay attention. And we hate getting confused with the other kind. There's the poor woman who has four happy, clean children, who keeps a good house and stretches her pennies, and her man dies. He gets some strange, foul affliction not covered by insurance. Now, she's in a pickle. She has to lean on the community. This woman is worthy of charity. She did not make her own fate. Could have happened to all, any of us. We have sympathy. That's one kind of poor. But there's another, oh, the kind we hate being confused with. This is the man who gambles or drinks and whines that he's broke. Or he fakes an injury, moans about his back and sits around on the parish coin. Or a woman who has children with wastrels. Now these people made their own lives. They are relying on people's pity to save them from themselves. And, Tom, you have to remember this. You have to look at these people straight in the eye and still have the strength to walk away. You make it possible for a woman to have children with whoever strikes her fancy. All that will happen is that you'll get more and more women like that. Being good is hard, and it shouldn't include making being bad easier. Tom thought about all that for a moment. But the children, the children are sad. It's a real shame, a heartbreaker. I hate what Lily's doing to those kids. But I'd sure hate to be a part of a solution which made more and more like them. If a woman can live somehow by just having children, sure as sunrise, that's what some will do, more and more. Catherine sighed. Being God is hard, Tom. You've got to be strong, strong enough to walk away, strong enough to let people live with their own mistakes. So 
Why are you seeing her? There was a pause. Catherine looked away. Hope springs eternal, she said. So Lily had come and wept and beat at her own breasts and wailed about her need for a job, for money, for support and love, and Tom had listened in pure fascination from the next room. Catherine, though he could feel the strain in her voice, held firm, and he got the sense of clouds, wild in the spasms of their own thunderstorms, attempting to behead a mountain. And afterwards, after Lily had stormed from the servants' quarters with many a curse and the invocation of the memory of a long-dead mother, Tom had not heard anything for a long time. Finally, he got up and went into the kitchen where they had been talking. Catherine? he asked, peeking around the door, little purple after-sofa spots on his vision. She sat at the table, her head resting on her arms. Oh, Tom, she said, raising her red, teary face. Don't be sad, he said. You are a mountain. She smiled, shaking her head slightly. Come, give me some sweetness. She held out her arms, and he ran into them, burying his head in her flesh. She kissed his hair over and over. "'Remember, pet,' she whispered, "'when you're strong you get love, and that's all you need.'" The morning of the debate dawned high and clear. The debate was scheduled to start at 6 p.m. Tom took the train to All Souls, loving the feeling of being carried over the countryside. I could change my mind now. I'll still be there in an hour. Waking up that morning, he had felt a great calm descending on him. He got up feeling a deep godlike glow in his innards. Every piece of worry seemed to have dissolved into a great airy space in his belly, where the sun shone and all animals agreed. It was as if this idea of a higher power had turned out to be true, and the universe could indeed stride alongside his journey and take some of his load. Actually, all of my load, he murmured, staring into the rusty mirror while shaving. He sang in his bath, lustily ignoring the complaints of his roommates. He knew from his own debating experience how important it was to warm up your voice. One wobble or crack at the wrong moment could ruin everything. So Tom did his scales in his bath, feeling the buzz of his voice bouncing back into his head from the white tiles, knowing that a hundred or so miles away Reginald was doing exactly the same thing. Hart was there to meet him when he got off the train. He seemed both elated and depressed. He asked Tom about his trip rather perfunctorily, and as they shared a cab to the university, stared out the window. Tom was almost dizzy with elation. He felt that he was stepping up the last few weathered stone steps to a mountaintop with a fantastic view, seen by only a few souls who had come, stared, and vanished, leaving no trace. A few minutes before they got to All Souls, Hart turned to Tom and seized his arm, his eyes fierce under his thick eyebrows. Tom, are you ready? Tom nodded. Because it's going to be a very important debate, I don't mind seeing a crucial one. Foreign eyes are upon us. We are seen, rightly or wrongly, as representing the views of the youth. 
We are viewed as a softening island, Tom. We are giving up India that is in the air. We cannot get out of the economic depression. We are abandoning our continental commitments. The alliance of the Great War is no more. Versailles is dying on the vine. Continental eyes are examining us, taking note. This debate to them represents the fighting spirit of our nation, so that is why I ask, are you ready? Tom nodded again. I know all that. As long as you do, said Hart, almost ferociously turning to the window to the swinging, turning streets. Do you want to go on instead? Hart turned back, stung by some violent emotion. Are you asking that to secure my commitment? Tom did not respond. In his mind, Hart's question did not resolve itself into anything coherent. Are you asking that so that I say no and you feel all right? What if I say yes? Tom smiled. If you say yes, I shall sit by your side and take notes. And if I can't, I shall cheer from the hall. And if I can't do that, I shall cheer from outside. Hart's brown eyes seemed to bore into him. With an effort of will, he eased his shoulders back down from around his ears. Tom said, If you want to take up the sword, I am confident that you will wield it with honor. But let me ask you this, Hart. Do you want this sword because you wish to make a mark? Because you will be noted? Because it might advance your career? Because that will not work. One does not take up a sword to cut a dashing figure or to impress the ladies. That is nonsense. One takes up a sword to cut down a foe. Then one cleans it and puts it away. Nothing else, Hart. Nothing else. Hart swallowed. Tom, your own brother? Do you know the number of times that my brother has come to visit me in London in the, what, more than two years since I left school? Not once. He has his life now with his wife. How many times has he invited me to see them? Not once. I get some grudging letters full of condescending advice. He was close once, once. After I saved him from the mob, he was sorry then. The next week he was the same. Honesty for him is like being underwater. It's too personal for you, Tom. This is not about you and Reginald. This is about Europe, another war, the world. No! cried Tom. There was something about the word that was magnificent. It was infused with a kind of holy rage, a clean, clear, glassy anger. It crested and vanished at once. Tom lowered his eyes and continued very softly. If Reginald can act like he has towards his own brother, and I loved him very deeply once upon a time, but if he can act this way towards me, what shall he feel towards England, to the history, glory, and honor of our island race? What is there left to betray? Nothing. Nothing. All that is left now is to perpetuate his first betrayal. To you? To himself. He has never spoken of what he finds so hateful about me, about mother and Catherine. Nothing is ever specific. It's all just a whitewash. I don't know for what. I have tried to give up the addiction of trying to figure out my brother. He is a shifting maze of mirrors. You can't even go in without losing yourself. But he wants me to doubt myself.
said Tom, fierce once more. He wants me to look in the mirror and see what he sees in me, and I will not. He stayed at All Souls. He's doing his master's degree now, and he does not believe in what they teach there. That is not an honorable position. That is rank servitude, rank ambition. Tom suddenly smiled. Do you know that Churchill did not go to university? Neither did Einstein. University is for second-rate minds. A man who really thinks does not require proof on paper. The taxi shuddered to a halt in a squeal of wet brakes. Hart looked at Tom for a long moment and then opened the door. All right, he said with a grin. Don't expend all your emotional resources before we even get started. They dropped Tom's suitcase in Hart's room, then had lunch in the cafeteria. Many of Tom's former friends came over to say hello, surprised to see him there. It was nice to see them, but left him feeling hollow. After the inevitable catch-up, short on his part, I'd been reading, thinking and napping in an 8 by 12 room. There was precious little for them to talk about. His old friends also seemed surprised to see Tom sitting with Hart, and drew back quickly, nervously, as if the combination of Tom's lassitude and his poor choice of friends could be contagious. They finished lunch just after two o'clock. For about half an hour, Tom and Hart spoke of inconsequential things, making jokes and little observations. Then Hart went to get a copy of the debating club rules and to prepare notes on arguments which might be raised against his substitution of Tom. Tom went to Hart's room and slept for an hour and a half. In his glorified inner state, he found himself melting into the pillow, feeling sleep stealing over him like a low, ecstatic tide. He dreamt of being tossed gently aloft by wide sheets of bright colors. When he awoke a little after four o'clock, he decided to go for a walk. There was a little wood just outside the campus, one of his favorite haunts when he was a student. A short walk, he thought, a duck of my head into the stream, and I would be ready to go and change for tonight. He walked for about twenty minutes. His nap had been wonderful. He felt clear-headed, agile. As he strolled, he could almost sense the slow, creaking growth of the trees and undergrowth around him. The winter birds which fluttered through the overhead leaves seemed to be tickling his own veins. Reaching the stream, Tom took off his shirt and hung it on a branch. He leaned the palm of his hand into the rough bark, then withdrew it and turned it around. It was pleasant to think that his red welts were an exact replica of the tree's skin. Squatting, he leaned over the stream. Narcissus! The mythological references burst into his mind unbidden and vanished without even an echo. He splashed his face, loving the coldness of the water, imagining that no impurities could survive in such frigidity. There was a delicate cough from behind him, then another louder. Tom stood up and turned around. Rivulets of water ran down his lean chest and belly like clear winding serpents. He swept his hands down over his chest, wiping the water away. Wendy stood on the path, holding a cigarette in one outstretched hand, the other resting on her hip. She was wearing a thick brown dress and a pair of Reginald's running shoes. My God, Tom, she said, don't tell me you've gone the extra inch and are actually living in the woods now. He shrugged on his shirt. Well, that didn't take long. She took another drag on her cigarette and coughed again. <clears throat> I used to smoke 
She said, but I'm not a very good smoker. I lack commitment. I only come to cigarettes when I need them. I never think of the feelings of the cigarettes themselves. Tom frowned. Reginald doesn't know you smoke? She laughed. Oh, Lord, no. I can't wait till he starts working full-time. It's much harder having a clandestine affair with your husband around. But what are you doing here? I came for the debate. She rolled her eyes. Oh, men and their debates. I swear that I do not know how you became the dominant sex. He's been obsessing about it for weeks. He thinks that if he wins, they'll make him foreign secretary. She smiled. It will be forgotten in a week. He's got all his arguments worked out, charted on the wall. But dear, I say, does it make sense to be obsessed with winning a debate about pacifism? He doesn't understand, poor thing. So you are in favor of pacifism? asked Tom, something defiant roiling in his belly. She laughed sardonically, tossing her hair and flicking an ash. I don't think that this is the right time for an exploration of my likes and dislikes. I am in favor of what advances Reginald's career. I am in favor of whatever gets us out of this godforsaken little village the quickest. Is he going to go for his doctorate? She paused and stared at him. If he hadn't been standing with his back to the water, he would have taken a step backwards. No, said Wendy slowly. I don't think I want to be the go-between for whatever Stone Age conflicts you and Reg have going on. You'll have to ask him yourself. All right, said Tom. They stared at each other for another moment. Then Wendy dropped her cigarette into the earth and twisted it, dark with a delicate turn of her foot. I suppose we shall see each other afterwards, she said. She turned to go, then cocked her head over her shoulder. If he wins, try to look happy. Tom took a deep breath, then turned and rinsed his face in the clear water ten times to restore his feelings of power and security. Tom arrived a little over an hour before the debate was supposed to start. The vast hall was already more than half full. At the end of the hall there was a raised platform with two podiums, two tables. Above them was a banner. B-I-R-T. That this house refuses to fight for king and country. There was a press table in front of the platform. Little signs bore the names of England's leading newspapers sitting on pads of yellow paper. The long rows of wooden benches were scattered with milling, half-sitting, half-standing people. There was an excited, audible hum in the room. Tom stood just inside the doorway and closed his eyes for a moment. It was an old habit. Every time he was in a hall full of people, he loved trying to discern scraps of conversation. He heard... That this should even be a debate is disgraceful. Mussolini and Hitler should be the adjudicators. We fought for four years. The best they can do is debate. War is impossible. Everyone might as well know that. It will send a message to our leaders. It will send a message to foreign dictators. What is the point of the League of Nations if we can just take up arms unilaterally? Collective security is our only chance. If they won't fight for king and country, will they fight for the League of Nations? I was hoping to find Sally here. If Reginald wins, find out where they're going to celebrate, and we'll go and really test his convictions. I'm only going to say it once more. I left my jacket here to save the seat. There can be no debate about how lovely you look. I already know how I'm going to vote. War is the ultimate failure. I mean, look what happened last time. I won't get crippled for another twenty-year peace. 
Fuck the Nazis. Unemployment is our real problem. Only capitalists profit from the wars fought by the proletariat. But under socialism, you see, war is not only unthinkable, but impossible. It's a goddamn tragedy, all these intellectuals, not one bomb. If it wasn't for Versailles, we wouldn't even be debating this point. They make the mistakes, we foot the bill. France in victory was weaker than Germany in defeat. Better red than dead. That's true for being a brown shirt, too. All this anti-Hitlerism is just Jewish propaganda anyway. Just get Hitler to fight Stalin, wipe each other out. You're just cloaking your cowardice in this pacifism. If France would just get her act together. I'll say this about the dictatorships. The trains run on time and everyone has a job. Freedom? What freedom? The freedom to starve? Why would I fight to defend a system which doesn't work? Think there are any jobs waiting for us when we leave? Think again. There was more. The conversations rose and fell in shrill and empty waves. There was great anger in the hall, despair, a sense of entrapment, a desire to evade some horror, to wriggle from the path of a rushing black train, a bitter cynicism, a panic, a sense of loss, a craven desire to compromise, a sadness, a sadness. They are sad that they have nothing worth fighting for, thought Tom. Then, he thought, but I am not sad, and I have nothing worth fighting for. But that wasn't true. Of course, he knew that. He was here to fight. Gentlemen, throw down your revolvers and unsheath your 19th century swords! He found a single seat near the front. Going places alone has always had its advantages. He did not engage in any of the debates raging around him. Save your voice. Soon, he saw Reginald enter from a back door. He was dressed in an academic robe, his hands clutching a ribbon with the all-souls colors hanging from his chest. His back was tall, his bearing proud. His curly dark hair was oiled and reflected the overhead bulbs in dozens of tiny shifting lights. Reginald had never had to shave much. He had had acne in his teens, and that seemed to have killed off most of his hair follicles. His cheeks were smooth, his skin cratered and tight. His prominent jawline showed to good effect. He nodded to the dean, who sat just behind the row of press desks. There was a pause, then Hart entered through the same door. I wonder how Reginald managed to ensure he would get out first, wondered Tom, fully realizing the effect that Hart's entrance made. Next to Reginald's lean runner's physique, Hart looked a little like a waif. Hart was a profuse sweater. His face shone under the lights in much the same way that Reginald's had, but with quite the opposite effect. Reginald clearly enjoyed the presence of the crowd, inclining his head. Tom followed his brother's gaze once and saw Quentin and Ruth sitting in the audience. Of course they'd be here, thought Tom, surprised that it had not occurred to him. Then he felt a stab of bitter anger. No one invited me. Hart went up to Reginald. Tom almost expected Hart to tug at Reginald's robe and ask to go to the bathroom. He could see Reginald knew Hart was beside him, wanting to talk to him, but he took his sweet time turning around, and Tom's blood began to roil in the way that only Reginald could provoke. Finally, 
Reginald turned around and graciously inclined his head downwards in the manner of one granting a favour to a desperate supplicant. He frowned delicately, seeming not to hear what Hart was saying. Hart repeated himself, his hand beating the air more slowly this time. Then Tom saw something extraordinary. Even though Reginald knew that more than a thousand pairs of eyes were upon him, his body froze in shock. He looked exquisitely vulnerable all of a sudden, and Tom's heart went out to him. Stop it, he told himself violently, enraged that he could so quickly go from anger to pity. Reginald turned his face towards the audience slightly and laughed incredulously, obviously, or at least obviously to Tom, trying to buy time. He straightened and looked back at the dean, who shrugged and smiled in benevolent helplessness. Dr. Simons, the adjudicator, walked over and conferred with the two young men. There was a moment's pause, and then Dr. Simons walked to the front of the stage and held up his hands. "'Ladies and gentlemen,' he cried, "'it has just been brought to my attention that the debate scheduled for tonight has undergone a slight revision. Hart Beaumont has just informed me that he wishes to nominate a substitute debater for his position. Is Tom Spencer in the audience tonight?' Tom stood up and waved. Four pairs of eyes sought him out and fixed on him. Reginald, Ruth, Quentin, and Wendy. Dr. Simons motioned him to come up to the stage. Cries of, Go on, Tom! arose from the remnants of his old rowing crew. Various other voices joined in, and soon the chant, Tom! 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 echoed through the hall, a brutal plea for an Old Testament war of brothers. He pushed his way through the throng at the front of the stage and climbed up. Reginald was staring at him, caught in an impossible situation. It's about time, thought Tom. Reginald could not back down, but he did not know what was going on. He believed he had heart beat and did not think much of Tom's debating abilities, but hated uncertainty of any kind. Mr. Spencer, said Dr. Simons, placing his hand on his shoulder, the rules do not require that you be a student to debate, but I have this to ask. We are going to be voting on this resolution tonight, and if you carry the field, it might be said that it doesn't count, since you are no longer enrolled here. Given the importance of this debate, do you want to risk undermining your position? Tom glanced at Hart, who nodded slowly. Yes, said Tom. Dr. Simons turned to Reginald. And are you content with the substitution? I don't want there to be any gainsaying after the fact. Reginald nodded. He did not greet Tom. He did not look at Tom. All right, said Dr. Simons. Mr. Bowman, step down. Hart left the stage, disappearing into the crowd which parted before him, casting odd, disparaging looks his way. The word coward played upon many a lip. Dr. Simons turned back to the crowd. He raised his hands for silence again. Ladies and gentlemen, he cried. The resolution before the House tonight is, be it resolved, that this House refuses to fight for king and country. Now we have allowed the substitution of an ex-student for Mr. Beaumont, but please note that in order to vote upon this resolution you must be an enrolled student. Have your student cards ready. I now turn the stage over to Reginald Spencer, who will have ten minutes to introduce the affirmative position. Tom took a seat behind his desk. He took a sip of water, his heart pounding. The energy of the waiting crowd was immense. 
He watched his elder brother step up to the podium and raise his hands. "'Friends, colleagues, fellow students, well-wishers,' said Reginald. "'There are several ways to approach the question of fighting for king and country. "'I would like to start this evening off by telling you what this question is not. "'This question is not about courage versus cowardice. "'This question is not about patriotism versus internationalism. "'This question is not about selfishness versus heroism.' If you have come here already convinced that what I propose is nothing more than the craven desire to avoid toil and danger, then I am very sorry, but I shall be forced to disappoint you. Reginald smiled. It is clear to all of us gathered here tonight that war is no longer a viable instrument of diplomacy. It is not my intention to go into great detail about the Great War, the war to end war. It should suffice to note that, if the great slaughter of the previous generation were to lead to another general war, then their sacrifice will truly have been in vain. Do we honour those who laid down life and limb in that terrible conflict? We do. I myself lost a grandfather and three uncles in 1915. Their memory is dear to me. I would do nothing to defame their sacrifice. It is my contention that to allow our statesmen to believe that they can march another generation into certain slaughter would be to defame the memories of those who gave their lives to end war. It is my contention that war is not the inevitable result of conflicts between nations. It is my contention that should our current government realize that they do not have the power to wage war, then they will find solutions more creative, more humane, and frankly more effective than declaring war. There is grave danger in Europe as we speak. The fruits of the last war have not been a relaxing of international tensions. We see a dictatorship in Italy. We see unrest in Spain and France. And as of January this year, we find that an absolutist state has come to power in Germany. In the old world, this would have meant the sharpening of both words and swords. It would have meant the escalating irritation of border disputes the economic and moral madness of an arms race. In all lands, it would mean the entrenching of interests based on the profits of war. And, my friends, it would mean the end of the League of Nations. Reginald's paused. That last is a crucial point, ladies and gentlemen. The League of Nations is a noble institution forged out of the crucible of the last war, and we have signed solemn treaties to uphold its authority and peacekeeping mission. The resolution before this house, he turned to point at the banner, is not, be it resolved that this house refuses to fight for anything. The goal of the pacifist is not the general rot of nihilism and defeatism. We are more than prepared to join with the League of Nations, with the other countries in Europe, to ensure collective security. What we are not prepared to sanction is the kind of muddling each country for itself diplomacy which produced the last war. Throughout English history, diplomats have negotiated secret treaties with the European powers. These treaties are like secret fields laced with landmines which other nations must then cross to parley with us. We have seen the results of this. We deny that secret diplomacy can create a stable, lasting peace. We believe in the League of Nations. We retain the right to say to our elected officials, England has chosen to be a full member of this League, and thus has committed herself to open public diplomacy. England has given up the right to make unilateral decisions. 
England has joined forces with the other European powers to ensure that disputes are dealt with openly, above the board, in full view of the world and all interested parties. Reginald shrugged eloquently. There are other options, of course. No doubt my honourable opposition will inform you of them. But let me mention one thing before he does. Whatever he says, he will be arguing for a return to the conditions which produced the Great War. No doubt he will employ many tricks to have you believe that this is not his intention, but it is. We have, in fact, only two choices before us. We can go back to the old way, to secret diplomacy, dark treaties and arms races, and in so doing we shall guarantee ourselves exactly the same results. Or, he said, raising his arms, we can choose to change our fate. Serious problems face us in the world today. Germany, rankled by her long exclusion from the stage of world affairs and damned economically, politically and morally by the disastrous Treaty of Versailles, has risen once more. She feels that all Europe is arrayed against her. We can raise our lances against her supposed charge, thus confirming her suspicions, or we can sit across from her, ask her to name her grievances, and then work with the other members of the League to address them. Now, my honourable opponent will no doubt tell you that this is impossible, that Germany is bound to war because she has chosen Herr Hitler to lead her. Reginald's eyes narrowed. If you believe him, my friends, then there is no actual purpose to this debate. If another war is inevitable, then we are all doomed. Fewer than half of us could be expected to survive it. If this is his offer to you, I urge you to reject it for the madness it is. Either Germany can be reasoned with or civilization is at an end. It might last another generation in America, but it is over as far as Europe is concerned. If Germany can be reasoned with, then England will have no need of soldiers. If Germany cannot be reasoned with, then England will have no need of soldiers, because we shall all be bombed to atoms on the second day of the next war. And this is why I urge you to support this resolution. Let us not delude our leaders into thinking that war is possible. If the last war was not the war to end war, then the next one shall be, because humanity itself shall be at an end. Reginald's voice rose. Thus I urge you to support us in gently taking the sword from the hands of our leaders. It is reason which will solve the world to come. Human conflict has come to such a pass that we no longer possess a weapon capable of harming our enemies alone. All who draw the sword shall die by it before it has even left their scabbard. Let us not be among them. Let us choose the path of reason. Reginald was sweating as his speech was counted down by Dr. Simons. Random cheers erupted as the passion of his final phrases rose. When he finished, fist upraised, the hall burst into cheering and foot-stomping. At the back, among the older men and women, a chorus of rule Britannia arose, but it was quickly outshouted. It took Dr. Simons a few minutes to restore order. Finally, the hall quieted somewhat. I wish to thank the Honourable Member for his remarks. I now turn the floor over to Thomas Spencer, who will argue against the resolution. Tom took another sip of water and remembered to walk slowly to his podium. He smiled out at the jeers of those in front and the respectful silence of those in back. He noticed that a thin man from the Times had put down his pen after taking notes from Reginald's speech 
and was staring at him with open belligerence. "'I want to thank my esteemed opponent for his comments,' said Tom, and respond with a few of my own, mostly quite simple. First of all, I would like to point out that the banner over our heads does not read, Be it resolved that all who are willing to fight for England can't wait to have another war. Neither does it read, All who are willing to fight are opposed to the League of Nations and collective security. It is the cheapest and oldest trick in the book to say that those who are prepared to fight are in fact eager to fight. Both a surgeon and a sadist will cut you open, but they are not to be judged the same. Thus to say that to be willing to wage war is the same as desiring war is foolish and misleading. It is also foolish and misleading to say that anyone who reserves the right to unilateral action is automatically opposed to internationalism. Let us imagine the following scenario. Germany invades Austria. There was a general outcry among the audience. Tom held up his hands. It is Herr Hitler's stated intention right there in the first paragraph of Mein Kampf. So pretend, if you like, that you are indulging him, not me. Now, if this happens and the League of Nations does not act, what shall we then do? Please note that the sign above us also does not say we refuse to fight for king and country as long as the League of Nations stands firm. No, It says, we refuse to fight, no matter what, no matter if collective security fails, no matter if Germany invades England, no matter what. Tom smiled, letting the words wander the crowd. Now, I, for one, would be overjoyed if the principle of collective security were able to keep war at bay. Whatever keeps the dogs of war leashed is worth our full support. The great question, however, the question before all of us tonight is, what if war comes? Let us not mislead ourselves. There are times when war comes to peaceful nations. My colleague says that we must respect the memory of our dead. I agree. And so I would say that to allow tyranny To conquer the freedom of this island because we do not want to fight is to dishonor our dead. I will not stand for it. You see, in my view, the purpose of a nation is fundamentally a moral one. We love England, not because we are born here, but because England is a moral country with an honest government, honorable institutions, and ethical laws. We love England precisely because we can have this kind of debate without fearing for our lives. Now, there are unethical men in the world. They exist in England in the form of criminals. We do not negotiate with them. We use force to restrain them. That is a principle accepted by all sensible citizens. Unethical men exist beyond our shores as well. These forces are antithetical to our way of life. They seek to enslave the free and humble the proud. These men currently rule the dictator states we see rising across the face of Europe. Their existence cannot be ignored. It is my supreme hope that my honorable opponent is right, and that we can reason with such men. Tom turned to stare at his brother. My heart, though, says that it will not be so. He turned back to the sullen crowd. And if it is not so, 
then what should our actions be? Should we take on the policies of appeasement, giving them what they demand at pistol point, hoping to buy a few months or years at the expense of our honor and strategic advantage? Should we wait until our foemen have waxed in strength before opposing them? Should we wait until Europe is under Nazi or fascist rule before resisting them? My honorable colleague wants to reason with the dictators. So be it. But does he expect that should we sit down to negotiate without arms, that dictators with armies behind them shall grant us any concessions? And what then? What if these men, iron men, hard men, military men, do not respect our words, the words we cannot back up with force? What is to be our position then? He answers, we shall not fight. We shall not fight to protect our island. We shall not fight to protect our hard-won liberties, our cherished institutions, our families, our way of life, and all the honor of our existence. We shall place only our goodwill in the paths of the coming armies. No. No. We are not destined to end thus. We shall instead say to the world, we work for peace. We will sit and parley with all who desire peace. But against those who work for war, we are stalwart. We will not falter. We meet arms with arms! There was a great commotion in the hall. It had been rising for a few minutes. Tom had felt it coming at him, striving to wash his words from the air with uncomprehending hostility. It broke out on his last sentence, and he let it wash over him. Warmonger, you just run along and start your war. We'll be along in a while. Germany is what we made her. What, you still think we can win a war? Get off the podium, Napoleon. Who's paying you, allied steel? No wonder you never came back. Dr. Simons had to fight for order. He shouted out that disruptions would not be deducted from Tom's speech. It took a few minutes. Tom did not close his eyes, although he wanted to. The crowd, strangely enough, did not destroy his sense of exaltation. Finally, he was able to speak again. He spoke softly, letting the demands for silence flow towards him from the older men and women in the back of the room. There are those among us who think that two countries which have conflicts are like brothers who have let pettiness overshadow their common interests. They think that countries go to war for reasons of psychology, not ethics, that communication can solve all ills, knit all wounds, and mend all fences. But it is not so. If it were so, we would need to only negotiate with domestic criminals, and the world would be a much prettier, nicer place. But the world, for the most part, is neither pretty nor nice. We have grown up among the sons and daughters of liberty, and so we approach the world with benevolence. But most of the world knows nothing of liberty. Most people in the world are brought up in conditions which would ill-befit a British dog. And we cannot go to these people armed with nothing but good intentions. They do not speak our language. To them, good intentions are the last resort of the helpless. You are either a master or a slave, and masters do not bother with good intentions. But these people do respect resolution. They accept and understand courage. And it is crucial that we understand that. 
because there is a worse scenario than the one I am proposing. All rational men oppose war. Tom caught his mother's eyes. Her face was an open wound. All, all wars of aggression by a resolute enemy can be successfully opposed by an equal resolution on the part of the peacemaker to use force. In this, my colleague and I agree. He supports the use of force in the form of the League of Nations. Splendid, so do I. Where we differ, however, is that he is not willing to go any further than the League of Nations. I am. I believe that liberty is worth preserving. I welcome the intervention of the League of Nations and hope with all my heart that it will succeed in preventing aggression. But if it does not, then I, for one, am willing to fight for king and country. Not due to blind allegiance to either king or country, but rather because they both represent the light of reason and freedom, a light which should not be allowed to be utterly extinguished in this world. Tom finished with both his hands gripping the podium. His voice was thick and rough with passion. He felt as if he was overfull with emotion and that only a small part of it had found its way into his speech. The derisive roar of the crowd with some hear-hears thrown in mixed with piercing whistles did not wash over him. It flowed into him, charging him even further. When the crowd had been soothed back into surly quietude, Reginald took his stand again. His rebuttal was a disappointment to some. Tom had effectively forestalled the accusation of warmonger, so Reginald had no choice but to reiterate his point about the need for British leaders to never imagine that they could order another generation to the trenches. He also added that since a modern war could never be one, there was no point promising to fight it. There was nothing particularly new in his words, but some nicely turned phrases lured back the rampant emotionalism in the hall, the passions of a population desperate to avoid war, in the face of a man who promised that it would never come, were hard to restrain or focus. Reginald's final position was this. We should not underestimate the power of pacifism in the realm of negotiation. Imagine this, your spouse chooses to divorce you, and when you meet with her for the first time to discuss terms, he or she arrives with an aggressive lawyer. What would your response be? Would you not postpone the meeting, go and hire your own lawyer, and let things escalate from there? And what would be achieved? Or imagine that your spouse sits you down and says, I am not happy in this marriage. Would you reply, then, damn it, let us get divorced? Or would you instead say, tell me what you dislike, and we shall work to make you satisfied? To approach conflict with open arms is the root of Jesus' command to turn the other cheek and love your enemy. It is not wise to have one commandment for personal relations and another for international relations. Why not just have one rule for all? Tom's rebuttal was more succinct. It did not sway many people because it was impossible to imagine that preparing for war would somehow not bring war about. He did, however, agree with Reginald's idea that one should have only one rule for all relationships, but utterly rejected his marital metaphors. Of course we should reason with our spouse. My argument is not that we should refuse to reason with the dictator states, but rather 
that we should be prepared for the possibility that they shall not want to reason much with us. But to take up my opponent's metaphor, let us imagine that the police were to adopt the slogan we see hanging over our heads. They would say, We shall never interfere in marital disputes. Now, on a haggle over doing the dishes, we should all agree. But what happens, I ask you, if a husband decides to start hitting his wife? Should the police say, Sorry, miss, but we have pledged never to get involved? Would that be just? And more importantly, who would benefit? Surely not the wife. The husband would benefit because he could play croquet with his wife's face whenever he pleased. This would be a disaster for all marriages, I submit. And to bring the metaphor back to the international stand it was originally supposed to explain, let us see how the pacifist scenario might play out in Europe. A dictator acts aggressively towards another country. We sit down with him, assuming that he is interested in discussions at all. We say, please stop. Do we really expect this man who has invaded another country to be swayed by our gentle requests? He is willing to murder the citizens of a foreign land, but he will be stopped by our kind remonstrance. He will say, why should I stop? We will say, because it is wrong. But if he had any sense of morality, he would not have invaded another country in the first place. So we will have to have another argument to convince him to change his course. If we do not, we should not expect any other aggressors to sit down with us in the future. No, ladies and gentlemen, I think that the dangers of another war are too great for us to take refuge in this kind of fantasy. The policy of this island for the last thousand years has been to prevent the rise of a supreme power in Europe. If the League of Nations can be used to achieve this end, we can all sleep satisfied. But if it does not, then we must reserve the right to act as independent guardians of all that is good, noble, true, and right in the world. Every time Tom used words like noble, honor, and true, sardonic jeers were hurled at him like acidic spears. Tom knew that these words were no longer considered in and of themselves, but rather as a kind of propaganda, the kind of propaganda which drew the last generation into the trenches. So he decided all of a sudden to wrap up his speech in a different vein. Now, I know that certain words have become tarnished for us. Truth, honor, duty, virtue. These are all now debased terms. A weary cynicism has replaced the optimism of the last century. And there is value in that, at least for me, because moral concepts always benefit from rational re-examination. But something far darker has taken hold of our golden ideas. Some dead moon has eclipsed all the brilliant goodness we used to believe in. If that is the case, then I do not believe that we deserve to continue as a nation. I believe that we deserve to meet our fate at the hands of whichever dictator is the first to cross our shores. Because if we do not believe that our government, our country, and our institutions represent something high, something good, then we have, in fact, nothing to defend but our own base hides. In which case, I submit, I believe that the argument above us is entirely right. 
If all we want to do is survive, then we should never forge or wield armaments. We can survive as well under a Nazi boot as under the free air of democracy and capitalism. But is there not more to life than survival? Would not the best and brightest among us, the ones who ask questions, read books and challenge authority, be the first to be killed? And even if we were allowed to live like chained dogs, would not that kind of existence be worse than death? To die opposing evil is better than to survive in the service of it. If we believe that the story of our race has led to something good and noble and true, then we must defend all the riches of our inheritance. If we don't, then yes, let us never take up arms to protect it. But let us not do it because we claim we have a higher, braver, and more noble purpose. We shall be doing it because we are not men enough to keep what we have inherited and prefer sinking into the muck of totalitarianism to fighting for the high steps of freedom. But let us not lie to ourselves. If we are to keep what we have, it will not be through words alone. That is my only proposition. That is all you have to vote upon. That is the question which draws beady foreign eyes to this great hall where the flower of youth stand or fall before the uncertainties of their times. That is all. That is all. Tom finished to great applause. Some of it was sardonic, the kind of lazy, sarcastic clapping which involves looking with tight lips to one side and keeping the wrists together. Some of it was appreciative. Tom had touched those among them with less higher education, those less touched by the German mysticism currently in vogue in English universities. They rose because they were inspired. They rose because they had heard little about honor in the years they had lived and had little idea what those years were supposed to amount to. Some of it was preordained, given by those who agreed already, but appreciated having their beliefs expressed so passionately. As he looked at the boiling, fleshy expanse of applause and jeers, Tom suddenly felt close to tears. He realized something with a terrible thump in his chest. Everyone in this hall is afraid. Living as he had in his little room, spending time in libraries, movie theaters, and coffee shops, he had not felt it as clearly as he did now, tonight, looking out at the wild passions before him. People's faces were distorted. They bared their teeth and wrinkled their noses. They looked like children, but they had none of the charm of angry children, for their issues were not petty. And this is them before they have families, he thought, frowning suddenly. This is them when they have only themselves to protect. He caught his mother's eye and his chin compressed as his eyes filled. The voting took almost an hour. The students shuffled up to a wooden desk where the resolution was displayed and voted yes or no. They knelt over the table, checking off their choices, shielded by a little cardboard prop, and stuffing their ballots into a wooden box. The vote took less time to count. After the debate, Reginald had shaken Tom's hand with a big grin, designed to show the crowd that it had all been in fun. Tom did not smile. He had the chilling thought that, as Wendy had said, 
Reginald hoped to secure some post in the Foreign Office from his speech and that his brother had betrayed their country for the sake of his career. Reginald had disappeared into the crowd, shaking hands and receiving the back claps of his supporters. Tom had watched him from the stage. When he got to their family, Quentin shook his hand. Wendy kissed him on the cheek and patted his arm. A gesture somewhat less than the occasion deserves, Tom thought. Ruth looked at her eldest son for a long moment, then lowered her eyes and kissed him on the other cheek. A shudder ran through Reginald, but he laughed it off and inquired how they had enjoyed the debate. As Tom watched, the whole family turned towards him and gestured that he should come down. That would be the most horrible thing in the world, thought Tom, to stand and chat afterwards as if it were an exercise, as if we were debating some cliché. He mimed drinking a glass of water and then went back into the ante-room behind the stage. It was a small stone room with narrow vertical windows with coloured glass designed to protect from archers. It had a coat rack against the far wall, a few wooden chairs with red leather padding, and a black metal chandelier originally designed for candles which now held electric bulbs. Tom drew a chair up to one of the depressed arrow slits and lay his forehead against the cold stone. After a few minutes in which he felt that he would be happy to never move again, Hart came in. Are you all right? he asked. Tom willed his head off the stone wall. He turned to his friend who had a black eye and smiled. Crowded a little restless. Some son of a bitch was sneering at everything you said. I was going to be civil, but then decided against it. How was it out there? asked Tom. God damn it, brother, you did good. The term brother made Tom very sad. I am exhausted. I wonder if they're regretting not giving you that scholarship. Tom smiled. I don't think so. I think that the professors are probably thanking their lucky stars right now. I thought, I thought you did magnificently, given the hostility of the crowd. They were more friendly at the back. Hart smiled. Sure, the latecomers, the people who had to come from work, they actually have responsibilities. They know what's what. After half an hour, the door opened. Dr. Simon's head appeared around the rim. Votes in, he said. They went back out into the podium. The crowd had grown even more restless. Sneers and wads of thrown paper rained around Tom as he walked up to his podium. The smell of liquor filled the air. Tom saw one young man grope a woman who slapped him, then threw back her head and laughed. A few paper airplanes flew through the air. One boy lay on his back pretending to machine gun one of the airplanes. Another was whistling, throwing wadded-up paper at him, imitating bombs. Two girls pretended to fall down dead. They all broke into giggles, passing a hip flask. Reginald stepped up on the podium. He grabbed Tom's arm painfully. At least have the decency to go over and say hello, he hissed venomously, jerking his head towards their family. They knew where I was. Oh, grow up! Dr. Simons could not hope for silence, but he did manage to quiet the crowd to the point where there was some chance of his being heard in the back. The vote has come in. For the resolution, be it resolved that this house refuses to fight for king and country, for 273 votes against... One hundred and fifty-three. The hall became a cathedral of cacophony. Tom 
closed his eyes. When he opened them, his family stood in front of him. Reggie said that you had a bee in your bonnet about us coming to you, said his father, reaching down to pick up Tom's hand and shake it. So here we are. You were very dramatic, said Wendy, smiling wanly. Very believable. Is this fellow something or what? cried Reginald, coming up and clapping Tom on the back too hard. Tom's fists closed on themselves. Oh, what's the matter, Tommy? Still stuck in the rut of being a sore loser? Tom mumbled something that the others didn't hear. What? asked Reginald, cocking his ear right in front of Tom's mouth. Do you believe it? asked Tom. Reginald's eyes widen. What? Do I believe it? The resolution? It's rather academic, don't you think? I'd never be drafted, not with my education. It might be less academic to you, to use the word in a double meaning, but I have no doubt you'd cut a dashing figure in little green woolens. Do you believe it? I believe it personally. Politically, who knows? Do you believe it, Tom? Said Ruth, putting her hand on his forearm. She drew her own arm back. It was like a steel cable. It's over, Tommy, said Reginald. Votes in. All done. All over. Do you believe it? Oh, for heaven's sake, snapped Quentin, turning away. Let's go for a drink. Wait, cried Reginald. I do have something to say to Tom here. He turned his head, and Tom flinched from the rage in his brother's pale blue eyes. This debate was important to me, Tom. I don't expect you to understand my ambitions, because you sit in your little room and live off father's money. No, it has to be said. You came here, I suppose, to showboat or score a point, or to prove that your education continues in some incomprehensible manner. And it was good theatre in a petty way, and I'm sure that some lowbrows were suitably amused. But you have struck a blow against my hopes and aspirations, Tom. I had to hold my guns out of pity for you. Many eyes were watching, and you hijacked my evening, and for that I shall be a long time forgiving you. Reginald's face loomed in, and Tom had to fight himself not to take a step back. And so now, please, dear brother, try to keep your general failures to yourself, because I will not allow them to infect me. Stay in your little room if you'll be so kind, and leave the rest of the world to the adults. Reginald had been searching for a good wound, and he found it with his last phrase. His eyes danced with pleasure as his blade sank in. After what felt to Tom like a long moment, Reginald straightened and turned to his family. Sadly, Tom has decided not to join us, he said, then shepherded them away through the clapping, cheering, congratulating crowd.